Well, Father, we cannot comprehend the greatness and the richness of this passage without your help. And so I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate this passage to us, that you would use each and every word to start chipping away at our own little castles, our own little kingdoms, our own little missions that we created for ourselves. And Lord, that you would replace all of that with your mission, your kingdom, your purpose. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Have you ever been betrayed? I'm not talking about just has someone lied to you before. I mean, have you ever truly, deeply been betrayed? As some of you know, I have two older sisters, Corinne and Kathleen. Some of you have actually met them before when they've visited us. Uh, But for those of you who have never met them, I just want to give you a little bit of insight into each of them, okay? So Kathleen is the oldest, Corinne is the middle, then I'm the youngest. Kathleen went to college and got her degree in English with a minor in theater art, okay? Corinne, the middle child, she's three years older than me, two years younger than Kathleen, she is in the Army Reserves, and she is a paramedic firefighter. So this, this just gives you a little bit of insight into their personalities and maybe some of the differences between, between them. Okay, so Kathleen, very interested in, in theater, very active in her local theater scene. Corinne, Army Reserves firefighter. All right. And so it fits very well within those differences that Corinne, when she was about eight, I would have been about five, received a slingshot, high-powered slingshot, from my aunt, okay? Why wouldn't you give that to an eight-year-old, right? It was a different time. <laughs> but this, this slingshot, though, it came with rules, obviously. In fact, it really just came with one rule, which was do not point this at anything that's living. Now, you can imagine how that rule really played out in the coming weeks and months. It did not take long before my sister and I were roaming, kind of scavenging the neighborhood in search of any poor, unsuspecting creature that we thought might want to eat rocks for breakfast, okay? And lo and behold, one day we came across a lone rabbit casually grazing in the yard across from our house. And so my sister, she found the smoothest rock that she could find, and she began to descend on said rabbit. And as she got closer, of course, she she was very sneaky about it, as eight-year-olds are, and she got up very close to it. She put her rock in the slingshot. She pulled back those thick rubber straps, and she released. You could hear Sarah McLaughlin singing in the background. (laughs) As this rock, it seemed in slow motion, just progressed towards this innocent, unbeknowing rabbit. And you could see, right when Corinne released that slingshot, just this instant regret come over her face. Because not only had she just killed Bugs Bunny, an American hero, 
she had broken that one rule. And she knew there were going to be consequences. So, of course, my sister, doing what any eight-year-old would do, started, uh, you know, entering into damage control. She ran right up to me after she killed this bunny and said, you cannot tell anyone about this. You cannot tell mom and dad. Do not tell anyone. And even though I was five at the time, I understood the gravity of this situation, okay? And in order to protect my sister, I took a vow of secrecy that day. Now, my dad came home from work uh, soon after this. I saw him walk through the door, and I knew what was expected of me as a brother, as a person. And so I marched up to my dad, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, Corinne shot a bunny with her slingshot today. (laughs) That is betrayal. And for whatever reason, to this day, my sister does not trust me. Jesus is going to be betrayed in this passage. Truly, deeply, monumentally betrayed. And he's not just going to be betrayed. He's going to be denied. And not just by anyone. He's going to be betrayed and denied by his own disciples. But in all of this, Jesus is going to remain focused on his mission. And he is going to give a command to his disciples that will prove to be foundational, not only for them, It's going to be foundational even for you and me today as we are part of the local church. And we just got done reading 18 verses in John chapter 13, but I actually want to spend most of our time today just focusing on two of them, what I would call the meat of the passage. It's it's not that the, the other verses aren't important or that they're less important, but I think that what John is trying to do here is he's using these two stories of Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial as kind of sandwiches to, or I'm sorry, kind of bread to the sandwich of John 13, okay? That's not a very deep metaphor, I just like sandwiches. Uh, But he's using these two stories to, to kind of emphasize and centralize the command that Jesus is going to give us in verses 34 and 35. And so we'll, we'll definitely be looking at Judas, we'll be looking at Peter, but we're going to be constantly using their stories and comparing them and contrasting them to the command that Jesus has given in the middle of everything. And we'll be looking at three things about this command. We'll be looking at the condition of the command, the content of the command, and then the conclusion of the command. So, the condition, the content, and the conclusion. Let's start with that first one. What is the condition of this command in verses 34 and 35? Well, we see at the beginning of verse 34 that Jesus calls it a new commandment. And for those of you who are very familiar with your Bible and and especially the Old Testament, you probably will read this passage and know right away, this is not a new commandment in the sense that it's never been said before. 
No one's ever said you need to love one another. That's not true. And in fact, if we look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, so just three books into the Bible, we see God actually telling the people of Israel, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is not a new commandment in the sense that it's never existed before John 13. So it's a fair question for us to ask of this passage this morning, what does Jesus mean when he says, this is a new commandment? What is he trying to get at by saying this is new? Well, I think there's, there's two things here that we need to keep in mind. It's, it's new in the sense that it's now being exemplified by Christ. And it's being made possible through Christ. Okay, that's, that's how this commandment is new. It's not that it's never existed, but it is taking on a new shape because it's being exemplified by Christ and it's being made possible through Christ. So let's look at that first one. It's exemplified by Christ. This commandment had existed before Christ's coming, but the embodiment of it hadn't. Never before had anyone had an example of this commandment perfectly lived out until Christ had come to earth and began living out his ministry. And so while Christ isn't the first person to introduce this idea of loving one another, he is deepening it. He is making it richer. He is making it more real to us. He is fulfilling this commandment in his own life. And so he's kind of, he's giving us handles to hold on to when he tells us to love one another. He's moving this commandment from theory into practice through his own life as the example. And so if you want to know how to love your brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. That's what he's saying here. If you, if you want to know what this looks like practically in your life, look at me. I have, I have lived this perfectly for your example. That's what he's trying to communicate here. And that's why he adds this important phrase onto the end of this commandment. He says, love one another, but not just that. Love one another just as I have loved you. Now we'll talk about what exactly that means here in a little bit, but before we do, let's look at the second reason this command can be called new. So it's not just new because it's exemplified by Christ. It's also new because it's exemplified or made possible, I should say, through Christ. It's important for us to understand this morning that the kind of love Jesus is calling us to in John 13, is not the kind of love that naturally exists in all of us. It's not the kind of love that naturally flows out of us. It's not the default setting in our hearts and our minds. And if we're honest with ourselves, the kind of love we do have to offer isn't very dependable. It isn't very sustainable. My love for others is dependent on how much sleep I got the night before. It's dependent on how hungry I am that day or hangry. It's dependent on how easy that person makes it to be loved. All of these things are going to influence how much I love a person in my life. It needs to be convenient. It needs to be easy. It needs to be reciprocated. This is the kind of love that we see from Peter in verses 36 through 38. 
in the heat of the moment, we see Peter just so passionately desiring to follow Jesus. So much so that he even says, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. That is how much I am with you. That is how much I am for you. That is how much I love you. I will lay my life down for you. But within moments of making this statement, literally within 24 hours, we're going to see Peter deny Christ, not just once, not just twice, but three times. That's the kind of love that we produce naturally. It's fleeting. D.A. Carson says about this passage, good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. Now that's not a very glowing endorsement for Peter. Not a very great review. But it is a very insightful explanation of how we tend to express our love toward others. And so the question for us this morning, before we get too far into this passage, is how do we move from a natural, fleeting kind of love to a supernatural, enduring kind of love? Well, the answer is by the power of Christ. It's not just that Christ presents a pattern of love for us to follow. It's that Christ is the power by which love is possible. Christ's death and resurrection was not just love displayed. It was actually love distributed. Because through the cross, God has called certain people to himself. And he has not only called them, but he has empowered them with the Holy Spirit so that they could actually fulfill this kind of love that he has called them to. And so we actually get the opportunity not just to to gain the benefits of Christ's love, but to even model it in our own lives, to model it within the church as we interact with one another. And so the gospel is key in actually being able to live out what Jesus is calling us to here in John 13, 34, and 35. This is not a commandment that we can fulfill in our own power. It's not something that naturally resides within any of us in this room. It is something that's only going to be made possible through the power and cross of Christ. Because our greatest problem is not that we just don't love enough. Our greatest problem is that we are guilty of sin. And we need so desperately for a Savior to show us what love even is and to make that same love possible in our own lives. That's the reality that's going to make the rest of this passage make sense to us this morning. And it has to be our starting point. So, That's the condition of this commandment. It's a new commandment because it's exemplified by Christ and it's made possible through Christ. But next, let's look at the the content of this command. What is Jesus actually calling us to do here? Well, we find the answer in the last part of verse 34. Jesus says, Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
In other words, we, we can't really fully understand what Jesus is calling us to here unless we actually first understand the kind of love that Jesus has already demonstrated to his disciples here. The kind of love that he's already shown us. And of course, there's a lot that we can say about Christ's love. There's a lot of points that we could make. There's a lot of uh, examples that we could look at. But I just want to highlight two aspects of Christ's love that we see in John 13. The first is that Christ displays a humble love. Christ displays a humble love. That's the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here, I think, when he says, love one another just as I have loved you. We saw this humble kind of love played out last week when Chris spoke on Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In humility, Jesus lays aside status and position and rank in order to love his disciples humbly. And notice, he doesn't use his authority in order to kind of escape from servanthood, in order to get past servanthood. In fact, the exact opposite happens. He uses his authority in order to magnify his servanthood, in order to bring even more significance to servanthood towards those he loves. The role of a servant is never one that we outgrow in the body of Christ. There are all kinds of titles that we can take in in the church. We can be members, we can be volunteers, we can be uh, serving team leaders, small group leaders, directors, janitors, pastors, elders, all kinds of different titles that we can take. But what Jesus is saying here is that first and foremost, you are always supposed to take the title of servant as it comes to loving one another in the body of Christ. That is the kind of love that Jesus displays here. And not only do we see this humility shown in Jesus washing his disciples' feet, excuse me, his disciples' feet, we also actually see in the way that he interacts with and deals with Judas in verses 21 through 27. For example, in verse 26, we see Jesus dip a piece of bread and offer it to Judas. Now, most commentators would interpret this gesture by Jesus as as more of a sign of judgment, that, that Jesus is using this piece of bread in this moment to reveal Judas's betrayal and in some ways, kind of, in silence, judge Judas for what he's about to do. And I will say on one level, I think that's absolutely true. Jesus is using this moment and this this bread to kind of signify and reveal who Judas really is. That he is going to be the one to betray Christ, which is going to lead to the crucifixion. But in order to really understand this practice, we, we also need to see that he is using this moment to kind of highlight his own humility in comparison and contrast to the pride, the selfishness, the greed that Judas has already succumbed to. And let me kind of explain how I'm getting there. So it was a common practice at this time in history when Jesus is having this Passover feast with his disciples for the host of a feast to dip a piece of food and pass it to a particular guest as a sign of honor or friendship. 
So just think about the significance of what Jesus is doing in this moment. Judas has already stolen money from Jesus and the disciples. We know that from other passages in the Gospels. Judas has begun to conspire with the Pharisees and the Roman government to arrest Jesus. Judas is going to betray Jesus and assist in his arrest. Jesus is going to extend a hand of honor and hospitality to Judas. That is humility. That is love. But I also want to be clear here. Humility is not a pacifism towards sin. And so we, we can tend to hear the word humility or you need to be humble and we can translate that as, well, I should never bring up anyone else's sin then. I should never speak into anyone else's sin. I need to be silent on that issue because in humility, I know I'm a sinner too. But that is not the model that Jesus gives us here in John chapter 13. There is no subtlety in the way that Jesus approaches the evil committed by Judas. He is sure to explain and point out at least to Judas who he knows he is. He is committed a terrible, terrible, terrible sin against Jesus. But he does so in humility. You see, Jesus didn't have to be humble and patient here. Jesus is perfect. Jesus would not have been guilty of hypocrisy in any way if he had walked into that room and yelled, Sinner! with his finger pointed right at Judas. There would have been no hypocrisy in that moment. There would have been no room for us to judge Jesus as being unrighteous in that moment. If anyone had the right to judge Judas outright and with full condemnation, it was going to be Jesus. And yet what we see him do here instead is not point the finger at Judas, but he reveals Judas's sin in humility and in love and in patience. And the same should be true for us. We cannot be silent towards sin. But when we speak, we need to speak in humility. Well, not only does Jesus display a humble love to us in this passage, but he also displays a sacrificial love. That's the second kind of love, the second sort of example that Jesus gives us here when he calls us to love one another just as he has loved his disciples, just as he has loved us. It's a sacrificial love. Look with me at verse 33. Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Where is Jesus going? He's going to the cross. He's going to suffer for our sin, and in that suffering, he's going to cry out to God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Our sin has moved God to mercy more than it's moved him 
to anger. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet Jesus' response is a love that is rooted in sacrifice and bears the fruit of forgiveness. And so what can we learn from Jesus' example here? Well, quite simply, love is going to cost us. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So there's not much room for ambiguity in this statement, right? Just as I have loved you, Jesus says, that's how you're supposed to love one another. That is how you're supposed to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Nothing is off the table in our lives when it comes to loving the church. Nothing is too precious when it comes to loving the church. We should be ready to give our very lives in order to fulfill this commandment to love one another because that is the kind of love that Christ has exemplified for us. It is a sacrificial kind of love. And friends, let me just say, if if you don't believe this already, the world has sold us a knockoff version of love. It is a love with limitations. It is a love with expectations. It is a love with reciprocation. And it has left everyone in the world wanting. That is not the kind of love that Jesus displays for us here. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. We are to love one another with a sacrificial love. Now, let me say, as I've, as I've been a part of this church for a few years now, I've had the opportunity to watch you uh, from a distance and up close. I just want to encourage you by saying, from, from my perspective, I think that we do this very, very well. I have seen the way that you love your brothers and sisters in, excuse me, in Christ. I've seen the way that you greet one another with joy and welcome each other into your lives. I've seen the way that you have sacrificed your own comforts for the sake of lifting up and encouraging the body. I've seen how you weep with those who weep and you rejoice with those who rejoice. But I also know that there are things that I do not see, that there are things that I cannot see. I don't see the way that you treat your spouse or your roommate or your family behind closed doors. I don't see the way that you talk about one another when you are in private. I don't see some of the thoughts that run through your head as you interact with one another during the weekend and the weekday. And so let me just encourage you, but let me also remind you, there is no safe space when it comes to obeying this command that Christ has given us here in John 13, 34. Every interaction, every opportunity, every situation in the body of Christ calls us for exercising love above all else. 
And why is this so important? Why is it so important that we fulfill this particular commandment? I mean, out of all the commandments we could look to in the Bible, why is this one so important? Well, Jesus provides the answer in verse 35. He says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we've seen the condition of this command. We've seen the content of this command. And now we finally see the conclusion of this command. Now the conclusion of the sermon. The conclusion of the command. Don't miss the significance of what's being said here. Jesus is extending to non-Christians the right to judge and determine if Christians are actually Christians. And the measurement they're supposed to use is how much we love one another. That is the conclusion to this command. It is a confirmation of our faith. Not not just by those inside the church. Even those outside the church. That they can look at us and, and confirm in us that because of how much we love each other, we are truly disciples of Christ. In other words, love isn't just a banner that the church waves. It is the evidence by which the truth of the gospel is proven to all of those watching. The world needs a reason to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That the gospel is as powerful as it claims to be. That the Spirit unites the church like he said he'll unite the church. The love of Christ is not some kind of fluffy, flaky kind of love. It's the kind of love that makes natural enemies supernatural friends. It's the kind of love that brings unity in the midst of disunity. It's the kind of love that makes me a Packers fan. Love you Bears fans. Even though your team doesn't have an offense. And it's the kind of love that makes you be gracious to me, even when I say stuff like that. That is the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here in John 13, 34 and 35. It is the kind of love that leaves the gospel undeniable. It's the kind of love that makes the world around us stand in awe of what they see and they are left with no other option than to admit that the gospel is true and its effects are real. This is what Francis Schaeffer called the final apologetic. In his work, The Mark of the Christian, Schaeffer writes, Let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still, we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. That is the conclusion of living out this command by Christ 
You can have knowledge without Christ. You can have morality without Christ. You can make yourself essential to the operations of the local church without Christ. You cannot love like Christ without Christ. When you love the church like Christ loves the church, you prove to everyone that Jesus is more than a name. He is Lord. And he is Savior of the world. That is the power that this command by Jesus possesses. And so we've looked at its condition, we've looked at its content, we've looked at its conclusion. But let me leave us this morning with just two points of application that we find in this passage. I think that there's, there's a lot that we can draw from this passage. I would hope that everything we've said so far is on some level uh, applicable. But, but two specific points of application that I want to make from this passage that we haven't hit on yet. The first is that God's sovereignty is inescapable. Throughout this passage, we continually see Jesus undermined, lied to, betrayed, denied. We're going to see him arrested. And if you're evaluating this scene without without any bias and without knowing what's coming, you would probably conclude that whatever movement Jesus has started between him and his disciples, it's about to come to a very dramatic and sudden end here. But when you look at Jesus' reaction to all of these things that's happening around him, the exact opposite actually seems to be true. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. And he points it out clearly in front of John. Jesus knows how frail Peter's faith really is. And he predicts that Peter's going to deny him three times that very evening. Jesus looks Judas in the eyes and tells him, whatever you're going to do, whatever scheme you have, you better go and do it. And in just a couple days from now, the disciples are going to be able to look back on all of this, on this very scene and how Jesus has reacted and what he's predicted. And and even though Jesus is in the tomb, and even though it seems to the disciples that darkness has won out and beat out the light, they're going to look back at this moment and know God was in control. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He laid it down. And every attempt in thwarting the plan of God turned out to be a puzzle piece used to fulfill it. Well, friends, the same is true for us this morning. It is true in our own lives. There is nothing that we face in this life that the sovereignty of God does not touch, that the sovereignty of God does not rule over and claim. There is not a step you take that God does not care about and that God does not know about. Some of you this morning are feeling burnt out. There is nothing in your life that seems to be going your way. 
Some of you are feeling dissatisfied in life. You wish you had made different decisions. You wish you had gone to different places. Some of you have big decisions that are coming up. And you're looking at all of the options and you don't know how your choice is not going to just end in disappointment. And to all of you, I say this morning, God is sovereign. He knows what you're going through. And he is in control of all of it. His sovereignty is inescapable. He cares for you. And he holds you firmly in his hand. And that should strengthen our faith. It should comfort us to know that God is big enough to handle your tomorrow. And he's good enough to handle your tomorrow. Well, here's the second piece of application. We find it in this last half of John 13. We can find ourselves in this story. Maybe some of you, if you're honest, when you're reading John 13, 21 through 38, you would most closely identify with Judas. You have tasted and seen the love of Jesus. You have experienced who Jesus is. You have heard all of the teaching. You've listened to all of the stories. And yet your response has been to just kind of blend in to the community around you as you live your life in sin. Not truly submitting to the power of Jesus, but just kind of hearing about it over and over and over again and acting like it means something to you. But if we can learn anything from Judas, it's that unconfessed sin always opens the door to Satan. In fact, we see it literally says Satan entered into Judas the moment that Judas decides finally that he's going to betray Jesus. He's going to carry out this plan. And what we can learn from that is that the call of the Christian is not a part-time job. You cannot, be, you cannot be halfway in with Jesus. You cannot be lukewarm with Jesus. If you are not fully with Christ, you are fully with Satan. You are an enemy of the gospel. Maybe others of you, you're reading this story and you say, really, I'm, I'm not like Judas, but I am a lot like Peter. You've allowed fear of others to kind of determine the strength of your faith. And, and when it suited you best, when it was in your best interest, you separated yourself from the name of Christ. You denied any association you had with Jesus. You're, you've prioritized your status in society above your status in heaven. And let me just encourage you, no matter where you find yourself in this story, there is hope right in the middle of these two men's failures. There is a love that surpasses all understanding, and it is found in Jesus Christ alone. He has paid the penalty for our sins, and he has made it possible in his power, not ours, to fulfill this commandment that he gives us in John 13, 34, and 35. Yes, there are betrayers and deniers in this story, but friends, 
there is a lover named Jesus. And so what I would encourage you to do this morning is reject the life that Judas has to offer. Reject the life that Peter so poorly exemplifies for us. And instead, be a lover of Jesus so that you can actually be a lover of one another in the church. That is my encouragement to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the love that is found in Jesus. It is a love that is, that is beyond our wildest dreams. It is a love that is greater than anything we could produce in our own hearts. It is a love that is beyond our imitation to just mimic. It is a love that is possible only through the power of the gospel, only through the power of the cross. And so I pray that we would look to Christ this morning, first and foremost, as the foundation for love. And not only as an example, but Lord, as the power that makes love possible. That we would submit to Jesus with our lives, that we would proclaim him as Lord and Savior. The one who covers all of our sins. And the one who unites us all together to love one another. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.